Okay, I think we may as well start right now. Our third speaker is Ewan O'Halpin, who will be known from Trinity College, will be known to many of you for his work on the Dublin Council Administration on intelligence history and similar matters. Okay, go ahead, Ewan. Excuse me a second, Patrick. I just Thank you very much, and thank, thanks to Robin and the Reform Association for inviting me. I have a, a bits of a text, and I'll, I'll try to stick to it, and more importantly, I'll try to stick to the time, but you can all start waving if, if I go on too long. Uh, I was listening this morning to RT Radio, and it uh, uh, shows the, the experience of, of, a, of a former Taoiseach. Uh, his, his speech uh, had already been fully formed uh, sufficiently to, uh, to reach the, uh, the national media, who curiously hadn't approached me, just as well, of course. <laughs> But when we get to the point of a just war, I'll give an example of, of the dilemmas of just war, and I think that just war is not a useful analytic uh, tool. Uh, in the Second World War, we, as we know, we had a small country invaded by two powerful neighbors, one of them the Soviet Union, right? Um, and that country, you know, suffered very terribly in many ways during, during, during the, the process. Uh, now, you may think that this was Poland, in September 1939. It wasn't. It was a, another neutral country. It was Persia in August 1941. They were invaded by the Soviet Union and Britain, right? So if you were an Iranian, or, uh, wh where would you, where's the justice in that, right? And where's the, where's the wrong as about a thousand Persians died uh, fighting that invasion in, in opposing that invasion, or as it was termed, an occupation? So I think I think the concept of just war it, it, we should put put really to one side. Um, it is uh, something which Patrick Pierce might well have relished uh, debating, but I don't think I don't think it's a, I don't think it's of particular use in international uh, relations or in reflecting on recent Irish history. Uh, the, 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 I, I think it's extraordinary that that that, that uh, we're meeting on this on this historic day. On the one hand, the hundredth anniversary of the passing into law of the Government of Ireland Act of 1914, and also, and I think incredibly, uh, the day when Scottish voters alone decide whether or not to leave the union with England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. A minority of Islanders, we know, have already voted. We don't know what way. The question arises uh, in, in, in British terms whether this is a subtle commemorative joke. I'm afraid not. I think rather that today's British government is so deeply bogged down in the commemorative mud of Flanders that it's lost sight of any other significant anniversaries, or indeed a particular bugbear of mine, of any other battlefields of the Great War than those of the Western Front. It might be more appropriate, particularly when the Middle East is being pulled apart and when conflict still raises in Afghanistan and in what was the northwest frontier, frontier now, Waziristan and Pakistan, for British ministers to wear not a Flanders but an opium poppy, uh, both to commemorate a war that 100 years ago embraced the world and to mark one of the scourges of today's un, uh, unhappy world. And I, I, I'm going to interrupt myself in a sense. I think Pakistan, which I've just mentioned, is an opposite, cons opposite consideration here. Partition of the Indian subcontinent in 1947 by a British Labour government anxious above all to get out while preserving Britain's strategic interests in the region was arbitrary, uh, chaotic, and uh, without any consideration of the inevitable consequences. Faced with the competing claims for, amongst other entities, a Sikhistan, uh, and a Pashtunistan, I think there were other ethnic groups who wanted their own things as well up in, what, broadly speaking, north, northern India, which inevitably have overlapped in practice, produced their own inevitable tragic outcomes, 
and for a separate political space where Muslims would feel safe and be ruled by their own. The departing British government opted for a bizarre slicing of the cake, with the creation on the one hand of modern India, it, it always irritates me when we have Ireland, India, Symposia and so on, that we all talk about the long connections between Ireland and the Indian independence movement and this and that and the other and how the two countries have so much in common and how they have evolved into a mature relationship with Britain and all that kind of thing. But in fact, nobody ever mentions Pakistan, which after all was part of the old India. And uh, people who became, uh, if you like, Pakistani uh, figures belonging to the Pakistan historical narrative were in fact part of the broader Indian narrative. That, that, that's an aside. Um, this, this monumental, in fact, you got the creation not of a, you got a one state Pakistan, but divided by about, what, 800, 900 miles? There were two, there were two separate spaces marked Pakistan, uh, one of which after 1971 and a terrible civil war became what's now Bangladesh. So, and this, uh, we can't simply blame the British for this, or can we? Well, I think we should. We should. Uh, uh, at the moment, uh, uh, wave, wave our fingers censoriously, primarily at British statesmanship and the lack of it, and British cynicism, and they were leaving there anyway. But it underlines again the point that where you are, where you have, if you like, put it euphemistically, divided polities in the same physical space, uh, it requires, as also the First World War and the, uh, the Versailles experience and the experience of, of minorities across Europe in the interwar period, and indeed the experiences of minorities in Northern Ireland after 1921. We hear a great deal about uh, the travails, uh, actual and imagined, uh, of, of the religious minority in, in the new state of Ireland after 1921. Well, my grandfather, Hugh Hapney, he had to leave the North in 1922 because otherwise he would have been locked up indefinitely. My granny's brother, uh, Dan Rice, came back from the Curra at the end of 1922, uh, said, I'm out of politics, out of the IRA, whatever, I just want to farm the farm. For his pains, he got locked up for two years and he was effectively expelled, as were many other Republicans, from the new North. Right? So, so on the one hand, if you do uh, partition, whether it's good or bad, uh, it, it, it is helpful if there are robust protections in place, not just I'm sure to be all right on the night, I'm sure we won't treat you too hard, uh, which, which, which in a sense weren't even on offer in Northern Ireland, and which were vaguely perhaps on offer in this jurisdiction, which did after all from the word go from 1922 uh, make some uh, symbolic efforts to incorporate what might be seen as, as Southern Unionist interests through the Senate and so on, through judicial appointments and in other ways. And if we look again uh, back to uh, having uh, gone to Northern Ireland and partition, we, we, go, we go back to Pakistan and, and the, the key figure in the Pakistan national narrative it, it, and the key figure in the demonology of, of Pakistan in, in, in uh, history and in popular memory, particularly by Richard Atmer in that truly terrible film, um, Gandhi, uh, is Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And yet Jinnah, who is now the, the uh, portrayed by, in Pakistan as the founding father of a Muslim nation, all this kind of stuff, he wasn't from the area, he was from Mumbai. He was an urbane, British-educated, uh, barrister, a, a, a sort of casual Muslim, as he was described in various documents uh, by, by his peers in India, who almost accidentally has stumbled into this place. And in some ways, there's an analogy between Jinnah and um, a certain Dublin-born Trinity College-educated barrister who overcame prejudice uh, in London against provincials, become an outstanding member of, of, of the English bar, uh, but who now stands forlornly 
and I say forlornly. And the wind, wind steps, windy slopes of Stormont Castle, his right, hand, right arm extended and his long fingers curved, if you ask me, in evident despair, silently asking, who put me here? Because Carson, by background and uh, uh, disposition, was clearly not because of the same uh, rough-hewn Ulster tweed or whatever. Uh, as so many of the people with whom he ended up being associated. And Jinnah, the most urbane of men, uh, in many ways, many respects, the most uh, anglophile in others, for him to be, to say, the, end up as the founding father of a state which sadly has become more rather than less uh, focused on, on a single uh, religious identity, in some sense, a historical tragi tragedy. I mentioned the two of these because whatever the wherever the responsibility lies, one salient point in the creation of new states in the history of partitions and in the drawing of new boundaries is the centrality of careful preparation and the necessity of clear thinking about the minorities which remain or which will be created. Now, to some extent, in 1921 in Northern Ireland, in 1922 in the new independent Ireland, not quite yet the Free State until December 22, the administrative thinking had been done behind the scenes, largely by officials sent over from Britain, as Ronan Fanning has written about, and I followed in his train, the reform of Dublin Castle in 1920, was, and the, the preparation of a, of a civil administration in, in Belfast was done explicitly uh, to make sure that once these new entities emerged, they, they, there will be functioning government there. It wasn't a matter of politics, it was a matter of providing services, it was a matter of having rule-based administration and so on. But was, there, was, 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 much, was much done in the way of robust assurances to minorities, political or religious? I don't think there was, and I say particularly, as I would do in respect of Northern Ireland. A little more care was taken elsewhere in Europe on the minorities question in terms of the Versailles process, but there again it turned out the League of Nations, although in some ways it did its best, and perhaps is unfairly damned uh, for its inability to cope, especially with, uh, with German aggression in Europe, Japanese aggression in Asia. Uh, uh, but it did do a certain amount for a certain, it did exercise a certain moral authority, which I think probably mitigated uh, the plight of minorities, uh, some minorities in some of the new, new countries of, of Central and Eastern Europe. All right, I'll, 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 I'll come back uh, for a minute to the topic at hand, the Government of Ireland Act of 1914. But before I do that, and I think I have plenty of time, I, 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 want, I want to comment a bit about the very recent past and the present, because I think, it, it, whether it's coincidence or not, the linkage of the, of the Scottish vote today uh, and uh, the past of the Home Rule acted to law 100 years ago, um, in some sense they are, they are plainly connected. And they're connected not least in the, in the, uh, the, the, the performance or lack of it, uh, in particular, I would say, of, of, of the British government. But even before I do that, so far as I can ascertain, there were no poppies, no flypass over the Houses of Parliament, Whitehall and the Mall, and no ministerial <coughs> speeches three years ago on the 10th of August 19, 1911. Then silence was not a mark of respect or reflection. Uh, sorry, I should have said uh, this is 2011, not 1911. Whoops. Uh, but a reflection of the amnesia which seems to afflict British political life where significant constitutional change is concerned. Now, we in Ireland can never get away from our constitution. How many referenda are we promised next year? I, is it four? I mean, you know, they happen all the time. They're, they're like uh, buses used to be, although uh, more, more regular, perhaps. Um, the British, by contrast, and I say this, I lived in Britain, I've, I've studied Britain a lot, 
have great difficulty remembering any part of their constitution, let alone how it changes. And this is partly because they've never written their constitution down, so it's a matter, to some extent, of subjectivity, other than if you're a Catholic, of course, uh, and heading towards the crown or anything, as to what the constitution does and doesn't permit. But convention steps in instead. I refer, in, in the lack of uh, British uh, centenary commemorations, the passage of the Parliament Act in 19, of 1911 which revolutionized and democratized British politics, as well as John Bruton has pointed out, and Dermot, for clearing the way for Irish home rule. And that centenary came and went without any national marking or comment from Downing Street that I can trace. In, in the same vein, by the way, were it not for the Irish Defence Forces and uh, uh, Trinity College Dublin, the centenary of, of the most uh, crucial incident, if you like, in military-civil relations in Britain uh, in the last 200 years, uh, the Curra mutiny or incident uh, would have passed completely unnoticed. Certainly, we ran a conference down at the Curra uh, on the centenary, uh, but nothing at all happened in Britain. I don't think there was any comment or any interest in, in the one moment where the British Army, uh, the elite of the British Army, uh, were mobilised actively to support in, 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 in terms of a conspiracy to thwart the will of Parliament uh, and the government of the day. Uh, of course, the conspiracy, a mutiny, is not a mutiny when it is successful. And uh, the current mutiny is the prime example of a mutiny which didn't happen because it was successful. In other words, they, because the threat was made, we won't obey it. the orders, the order wasn't given, and everybody could go home. Although they, most of them were, many of them were to die, uh, tragically, not long afterwards. But that did, that, the, the current mutiny is part of what did for our, our All-Ireland Home Rule, and that was the central issue there. Uh, we should also mention uh, uh, the, the March uh, 2014 was also the 90th anniversary of a matter about which this state would, would, would prefer not to hear and which I suspect the Defence Forces won't be commemorating too much, which is the Army Mutiny, or rather because we call it a crisis of March 1924. So nobody's perfect. Uh, we, 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 in, in terms of, of, of the, the Scottish matter, to go to that, we may note the extraordinary combination of ineptitude, inertia and indecision with which the Conservative Liberal Coalition, uh, which David Cameron leads, and incidentally this is the first Conservative Liberal peacetime coalition since David Lloyd George's 1918-1922, have addressed the issue of, of the debate on Scottish independence. Presumably buoyed by the early opinion polls, the British cabinet appears to have adopted a policy of constructive silence, not through masterly cunning, as Cameron has hinted, but through having no alternative ideas. Where, where ministers have spoken on Scottish independence, it has been overwhelmingly in terms of issuing warnings about the dire consequences for Scotland, which comes as a surprise to many na Scottish nationalists to know that, that uh, English ministers were so worried about them. Um, uh, it's interesting that, that nobody, has, in terms of the dire warnings, however, has raised the vulgar question, which is a vulgar question Irish people are more likely to raise, and which anybody, if you saw, I think, in the Irish Times, and it was on Saturday, I can't remember, uh, but reports of, of an orange order, yes, uh, no parade in, in, in was Glasgow or Edinburgh, 10,000 people. Now, that has resonances here, but it should have resonances also in, in, in Britain, because the vulgar question of religious identity and sectarianism, not just between football teams, uh, in a sense hasn't been raised. But if you think uh, that an independent Scotland wouldn't be revisited, as it were, by by um, by tensions uh, going back to you know the 17th century, or whatever, I think you're mad. And nobody on either side, it seems to me, has been willing to say this. 
Be not because they, they, they don't fear it, but because they do. Um, where was I? <coughs> uh, and and uh, it's, it's only the last couple of weeks that the British cabinet have suddenly, the British government, have suddenly said, well, of course we'll do more for Scotland. Is that right? Uh, with something called DevMax. I think it's DevMax, is that right? Which used to be a Fianna Fáil motto. DevMax. Uh, uh, yeah, well, whatever. DevMax, sorry. Um, but why was this come so late if it was already in the, in the coalition's heart? I would say, like the Pope in pectore, but it's best to leave the Pope, as we know, out of uh, discussing the Scottish issue. Um, and if it wasn't already on their private agenda, and if no scenarios have been privately uh, developed and tested, how can London now be sure that, that whatever Devomax, sorry, changes are made will contrib won't contribute to the gradual disintegration, as in a sense John Bruton has suggested Home Rule would have done, uh, uh, rather than the consolidation and renewal of the United Kingdom? Right? How can Scotland be allowed to, to its fiscal head, but not Wales or Northern Ireland? Well, who would want Northern Ireland's uh, money anyway? Uh, will whatever rule of thumb is applied to Scottish representation at Westminster already call into question, automatically call into question existing representation arranges for Northern Ireland? And this suddenly comes into a ghastly area, which is our, you know, our, our interests and our interests in the peace process and so on, and for Wales. And what about England? They're England, right? England too uh, has, has, a, has a place uh, in the United Kingdom, which is often forgotten, uh, but England is plainly at the centre of it. I think it says something for the British political establishment's performance in defence of the Union that the most convincing voice to be heard on the issue in recent weeks hasn't been uh, Prime Minister Cameron, Deputy Prime Minister Clegg, or opposition leader Ed Miliband, all Oxbridge men, uh, Miliband went to Oxford, uh, Cameron went to Balliol and to Oxford, which is sort of double insurance if you're going to become uh, Prime Minister. Uh, uh, sorry, he went to Eton and to Oxford, Eton and Balliol to be precise. Uh, I don't know where Miliband went to Oxford, probably. Not quite Ruskin, but probably University College, somewhere like that. But nevertheless, at least it was Oxford, whereas Clegg will never get anywhere in politics. As, as uh, In British politics, he went to Cambridge. So you, you just, as a rule, you don't, you don't become Prime Minister if you go to Cambridge. Uh, but, but it's Gordon Brown, an Edinburgh, an Edinburgh graduate, and, and, and until August, the least respected former Prime Minister of the last 50 years. And Brown has been the hero, it seems to me, the southern hero, if you like, of, of, the, no, of the No campaign. Because he actually cares about Scotland, and he also he has been there. He has the, you know, the heather caught on his trousers, he has the, the mud on his boots, right? I don't, William Hague, for example, although he's from Yorkshire, although you never think it, uh, not very, very Jeffrey Boycott-like figure, but Haig has poured scorn time and again on, on Scottish aspirations. He described any likely uh, Devo Max solution as he said Scotland would become, I think, a high-tax ghetto. That's a very careful, you know, no wonder he's been such a successful foreign secretary, very carefully cho a chosen phrase and so on. Now, part of the problem, to go back to Ireland, in 2014 with Scotland, as in 1914 with Ireland, is that it is with one political party, the Conservative Party. And when, when William Hague, Hague himself became leader of the Conservatives following the, the, uh, the election, when John Major's defeat in 1997, amongst his first policy pronouncements, I don't know if you remember this, I couldn't believe it. I thought, why is he, go, why is he doing this? Why does he have to speak on this? He came out against Scottish devolution, which, of course, duly happened. But why did Haig have to? He had just become leader. 
They just lost an election. You know, there were plenty of other things they could talk about. They didn't have to take a position on anything, except to say Tony Blair's a fool and the normal things. But he took this hard line on Scottish devolution. And yet, I say, I suspect Hague, well, he probably has been to Scotland to, to, to do some shooting, uh, which is what Scotland is for, uh, in, in English eyes. Um, and yet, uh, since, since 2010, Cameron's coalition have continued in the, in the same vein of treating Scotland. Uh, for example, I, I, I go to Scotland quite a lot, see an elderly friend. Uh, the arbitrary decision to scrap the Scottish regiments. Now, you, you and I may not care so much about regimental traditions, but it's a part of the Britishness of Scotland is, is tied up with, with military service, and particularly with the army, and Scottish pride in their regiments, and so on. Now, it may, it may be a... a, a not, not as galvanizing an issue as you might think, but certainly it was all over the Scottish newspapers when I was there in the Scottish media, say the Scottish regiments and so on. And it wasn't, ironically, a sort of Trotskyite agitators with, with, you know, with, uh, with placards or whatever uh, who, who were upset. It was the highest of high Tories and, the, and perhaps the older, uh, the older generation generally. And it was, well, certainly I was in Perth, for example, uh, which is a, you know, a substantial town, and there there was quite a, there was a visible as well as well as a an audible uh, sen sense of loss that this was happening. Uh, leave aside the rationale. There's now you know there was some ridiculous compromise produced. But the point is this: this is Scot for Scotland, the army, whether we like it or not, is a very important focus of of national pride, right? Service of the British Army, and that in a sense had been taken away. And I was taken away because of some rationalisation plan plus three. Uh, you, do you know what I mean? By, by inevitably, by I think it was Lord Dannett, <coughs> Richard Dannett, who I don't think was Scottish, so he might have been. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, and yet, the British government has gone uh, historically, by, by, by the standards of previous prime ministers, for example, David Cameron is forever saying sorry to people. He apologised very handsomely, and I think rightly, on behalf of the British government when the Savile Report was published in relation to Bloody Sunday. Uh, he's apologised to, in, in fulsomely in relation to the, the handling by the York, South Yorkshire police of, of the Hillsborough disaster in which uh, a lot of football fans were killed. He's gone to Amritsar, a, a massacre where the site of a massacre in the Punjab in 1919, uh, carried out by by by, uh, by Gurkha troops under under the command of a British officer, incidentally educated in Cork and and fully supported by the Lieutenant Governor of the, of the province of the Punjab at the time, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who was from Solahed, which I assume was right beside Solahed Bay, uh, in in Tipperary. So he's used to, he's used to sort of reaching out to people and acknowledging past wrongs, and yet in relation to Scotland, almost nothing has been done, and I think that's extraordinary. And that's partly because the Conservative Party don't have; they've run out of Scots. Right? They've run out of Scottish representation and they've run out of engagement with Scotland. And I fear to some extent because of the nature of the fact that Labour still has a, a sizable uh, proportion of Scottish MPs in the, in the house in Westminster, uh, that in some, some sense, bizarrely, the Conservative Party's heart may be less in, in the defence of the Union uh, than, than Labour's is, though for different, different reasons. And now there have been other attempts to mobilise opinion. I will get back to Home Rule Chairman, I promise. Uh, uh, to mobilise popular support in, uh, in England for a no vote. But it's, 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 it's been very, very late and it's very strange. For example, 2,000 people last Monday may, uh, assembled in Trafalgar Square 
amidst all the pigeons and so on. Uh, to hear impassioned pleas. And who made the pleas? These are outreach. This is not just boring politicians. Well, they heard them from a group of comedians. Two comedians and a rock star. Now, the comedians concerned, and this is, this is the part problem with British politics. Comedian concerns were Eddie, Eddie Izzard, right? Who's, you know, he's okay. He appeals to a younger generation that, that I come from. Uh, but where did he go? I just checked, checked his background. He went to St. Bede's Prep School, a private school. He then went to Eastbourne College, a private, well, a public school, if you like. And then he went to the University of Sheffield, presumably because he was too thick uh, to get into Oxford. And Al Murray, whoever he is, where did Al Murray go to school? He went to Bedford School, which is a public school. And then he went to St. Evans Hall, Oxford. Right Now, to be fair, they were joined. And the most striking, striking phrase from that meeting is, is as follows. Well, came, 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 came from the third contributor, a musician, who, who told his listeners that, quote, we're all effing fed up of Westminster, but that, that the United Kingdom was worth saving. Now, we should know this man, because he went to Black... He is uh, Bob Geldof of the uh, Blackrock College and the Boomtime Rats. And I'd say, Sir Bob... But as far as I understand, he's not a Brit, even a, Brit, a, a, a citizen of the UK, is he not? An Irishman? Sort of Sir, Ro, Sir, Sir Ross O'Carroll Kelly is how I think of him. <laughs> uh, so, so, without, so we're having strange people uh, and uh, uh, making, making a case for the United Kingdom. But, but very few. Uh, Rory Stewart, the MP for Penrith, uh, who, who's always a... Uh, a figure like T.E. Lawrence, in, in very many ways, is a brilliant writer. He's been Western Harvard, the provincial government governor in Iraq, uh, he, who is a Tory MP but has been denied advancement, although he's now sec uh, chairman of the Defence Committee. But he, he, he came up with the idea of a cairn uh, near Gretna on the Scottish-English border, and he appealed to ordinary English people, you know, to place a stone to show how much they cared about Scotland, and that seems to have, have got some resonance and so on. But generally speaking. Uh, the, the conservatives appear to me actually don't care that much, right? So to move to the Government of Ireland Act, which I thought I'd talk a bit about, of 1914. The Scottish case brings up the problem of what would have happened had Home Rule come into effect and had developed in such a way as to evolve towards full Dominion status. Would Ulster have accepted that? If the roots of Ulster Unionist opposition to Home Rule for Ireland didn't lie simply in fears of religious persecution and Catholic intrusion in the sphere of private morality, and as we've heard, there were some protections there in relation to divorce and so on, and there's very few Ulster Unionists at the time that I'm aware of who said that these were part of their, their catalogue of fears from Rome Rule. It's not as though Carson was, or James Craig was, you know, uh, uh, setting off on his own contraceptive train or whatever uh, to, to show the inadequacies of, of what Dublin would be like on family planning, right? Uh, um, well, what were their fears? And their fears were party economic, clearly, as well as religious. Uh, and there's, but there, and it's the, I think party in the economic sphere, where you have, an, it seems to me, not a, a relative, but an absolute lack of forward thinking, let alone, if you like, of, of, of outreach uh, within the Irish Parliamentary Party. Because they do not seem to have had a clue. Apart from the Asher would be nice to the Protestants and we won't push, the, push them around much. They seem not to have had a clue about what they would actually do if they took over. Right? They didn't have a plan for you know, national economic mobilization, for, uh, you know, for greater uh, digging, for, digging for gold, for whatever it might happen to be, however futile those plans might have been or however far-fetched. They simply gave no thought to how in economic and social terms uh, an Ireland, a home rule Ireland, would be any different than under the United Kingdom. 
We know that in the social sphere, John Redmond, for example, was very much opposed to the old age pension. But I think even Redmond would have, would have had to swallow that one and not take it away uh, as the first achievement of a home rule administration. Uh, we, know, we know that uh, uh, in other areas, for example, Redmond was, was certainly not, uh, even before he was hit with an axe by a suffragette in Dublin in 1912, he wasn't uh, in favour of granting the vote to women, right? And I suspect that in so those kind of areas of, of liberal causes, a home rule Ireland would have, would have, would have been the last to move, uh, uh, you know, following, following Brit Westminster's example reluctantly and slowly, rather than being in, a, in any sense a, a sort of a, an active emancipator in these areas. The Irish language, you like it or, or you don't like it, uh, is, is a separate matter, but policy towards the Irish language under Home Rule Ireland, I suspect, would have been very different than it was, however calamitously, uh, in independent Ireland, right? Um, and I think, in general, the, the unprepared as the Irish Parliamentary Party, both to, to address Ulster on issues which, which may really have galvanised some of Ulster's opposition, which is, are to do, perhaps, with the economy and so on. Uh, wasn't relative and with taxation. Now, Redmond was a low taxation man. He believed that certain uh, uh, elements of society uh, needed, needed relief from, from, uh, uh, you know, from unjust taxation, such as publicans, right? Uh, but he didn't, he, 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 it seems to me, I'm not criticizing Redmond, but I will criticize his party. There appeared to be no thought gone in at all into how Home Rule Ireland would be economically run better, would be socially uh, an improvement. Uh, than under the UK. As Michael R Laffin put it of Redmond, while he had struggled constantly to achieve home rule, he seems to have made no detailed plans for using it. I'd say also that in terms of the condition of Ireland in 1914, the Irish administration, it was an absolute mess. If you look at the Royal Commission on the Civil Service, headed admittedly by Anthony MacDonald, who had run Dublin Castle for a while, uh, Ireland in 1914 is not running like Whitehall. It is not a well-oiled uh, uh, administrative machine, although many of the, uh, arguably many of the officials were well-oiled. It was, it was absolutely a shambles, a, a, a disaggregated, chaotic shambles. And the only solution that the, the Home Rule Party had was to concentrate power under a few ministers. But underneath it, you had a, you had a bureaucracy which was highly politicized, not unpoliticized, uh, and absolutely incapable probably of delivering uh, services in any sort of meaningful way. And that, in turn, would have played into the Ulster Unionist thing that, oh, those guys, those, those, those nationalists and those Catholics, they couldn't run, couldn't run anything. OK, um, I think for, 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 for organized workers, for, for the working class generally, a home rule Ireland would have been a pretty grim place rather than a progressive place, whether that's good or whether that's bad. Um, but uh, just, just finally to fin finish up, and I won't, I'll refrain from talking more about Scotland here. It seems to me that, that the, the, the home, home rulers, for all the extraordinary achievement of, of, of getting home rule on the statute book, and for all that, should, that plainly should be remembered, but it should be remembered not only in Ireland, it should be remembered across the world as, as, as even if you legislate, if, if thought has not gone into, a great deal of thought, uh, by those who legislate and by those who will be affected uh, by such dramatic changes, that, that, that consequences will follow of one sort or another, be it in, in the partition of India or the partition of Ireland or elsewhere. But the Home Rulers appear to have had no specific transformative vision for an Ireland governed from Dublin. The beggars might well have changed places, but the lash would assuredly have gone on. 
Um, in fact, I think it would almost certainly have grown more painful given, given that uh, the Redmond Eye preoccupation, and you see this in the records of discussions about implementing Home Rule in 1915 between the head of the administration, Sir Matthew Nathan, and uh, John Redmond and John Dillon, uh, they are primarily interested in reducing the number of public servants and so on. It's almost like John Redmond and uh, um, our current Wexford minister, Brendan Howland, have a lot in common, uh, cutting taxation and cutting the cost of public services. They have no positive vision at all. They, they, they are absolutely just saying, oh, we can't afford this, let's reduce this, and so on. And the other question, uh, another question, five, two other questions. One is, uh, there's very little consideration given, it seems to me, by anyone to how, to how uh, Catholics in, in a temporarily are, are, are a permanently excluded uh, four or six or nine counties uh, would be treated and how they would fare. I think, and that's a very uh, pertinent and has remained perhaps the central question of Ireland in the 20th century. So in summary, I, I agree absolutely with John Bruton and with Dermot Malini that the achievement of the home rule, of home rule was in many ways a remarkable achievement and achieved by constitutional means. Uh, but the time was too late, uh, I'm sorry, the achievement was far too late uh, the, the underlying ultimate question hadn't been addressed of what do you do about Ulster and how you define Ulster. I think that uh, if more energy had passed to be put into the protection of minorities generally, but I think especially in, in the Ulster that was likely to emerge, uh, it, it would have been an even more credible performance. But I think to, 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 to juxtaposition the achievement of home rule on paper, however remarkable, uh, with with uh, the Irish Rebellion it, it, and with with just to, to, to introduce just war arguments it's just not it, it, I, for me it doesn't work at all anyway thank you hi thank you very much Jonan for a very wide-ranging contribution now that there, there the, those of you who are older than me may remember there used to be a very useful Vatican official who was charged with the idea of, of gathering and presenting the case for why someone ought, who was proposed a saint ought not to be made a saint. And he was known popularly as the devil's advocate. And now I, I think that Ronan Fanning is perhaps in this cast in the role of the devil's advocate, but I'm sure he will, or he will challenge us all also. If you would like to, go ahead, Ronan. Okay. Um. What I'd like to say, begin by thanking Robin Bury and the Irish Reform Association for having invited me here. I'm not sure, Patrick, that I'm very keen on any kind of Vatican appointment, <laughs> but if you must offer me one, the devil's advocate is, I think, as good as any. Uh, like everybody else today, I want to begin with the extraordinary poignancy of the fact that Scotland is voting today on whether or not she will become independent. Unlike others, however, and in particularly unlike, particular unlike John Bruton, I would argue that the differences are infinitely more significant than the similarities. The first and most obvious reason is that Irish voters, I say Irish voters, were never ever given the opportunity to vote in a referendum as to whether or not they wanted to be independent. If they had been given such an opportunity, at any stage after 1885, between 1885 and 1914, 
on what was a very restrictive franchise. Today, one of the most moving things watching the news this morning was to see that Scotland trusts its 16-year-olds enough to give them the vote. In Ireland, at the end of the 19th-20th century, women didn't have a vote. No woman had a vote. And many, many men didn't have votes. But even on that very limited franchise, a great majority of people voted for Home Rule, for the Irish Parliamentary Party, again and again and again. So there's no doubt if there had been such a referendum, it wouldn't have been a narrow result. It would have been absolutely clear-cut. It was our misfortune, by which I mean misfortune of Ireland, that we had to work through parliamentary democracy. And I want to address most of my remarks today to British parliamentary democracy and how it worked, or as I would argue, how it signally failed to work, how it failed Irish nationalists, and how it betrayed John Redmond. But one or two points to begin with. Home rule, John, Redmond, uh, John Bruton said, there's a Freudian slip. Uh, home rule was on the statute book and was not about to be reversed. Sorry, it was a reverse. It was repealed in the autumn of 1919. And John Bruton will know as well as anybody, under the doctrine of parli parliamentary sovereignty, parliament can always repeal as Northern Ireland Unionists discovered, discovered to their cost in 1972. Parliament can always repeal what it has enacted. And it was repealed in 1919. And what was then introduced, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, at the risk of being accused of being overly cynical, but there's chapter and verse, and documentary proof by the load in my book, Fatal Path, that was never intended. The British government, Lloyd George's government, never believed for a moment that those who were by then the elected representatives of Irish nationalism, Sinn Féin, that they would accept the act of 1920. Lloyd George is talking to liberal backbenchers before the general election of 1918 even takes place, saying, well, at some point, I'm obviously going to have to talk to Sinn Féin. Because he can see from the way the by-election results are running, which was the closest thing they had in those days to opinion polls, which way, how much the tide had turned. I would also dispute that Redmond and Dillon played the cards they had very well. I think if Dillon had been leader, he might have played them somewhat better. But I don't want to get into counterfactual history, which I do not believe in. Uh, but I don't think he did play the cards very well, but in, especially in 1914. But if anybody wants to ask me about that in the discussion, they may do so. We also heard, just by way of an addendum, to all that John Bruton told us about the deaths in 1916 and the scale of those deaths and the numbers of those deaths. The numbers of those deaths pale into insignificance compared with the number of those who were slaughtered on the Western Front and elsewhere during the Great War because they had listened to John Redmond. That's a fact. But let me return to parliamentary democracy. 
a very fine historian, the biographer of Bonner Law, writing in a book that was published in 1955, spoke about parliamentary democracy. He was ennobled by uh, Margaret Thatcher, became Lord Blake. He's arguably the best historian of the British Conservative Party. And he wrote the following. The truth is that parliamentary democracy depends on certain conditions, because they, which, because they've usually prevailed in England over the last 250 years, tend to be taken by Englishmen for granted. In the last resort, it depends upon a minority accepting majority decisions. And this acceptance, in its turn, depends upon the majority not taking decisions, which the minority regards as genuinely intolerable. In England, the remarkable homogeneity of the population, the absence of violent disputes, the general agreement over the fundamentals of society have made such conditions prevail. Minorities accept majority decisions because they know that these decisions will not be insufferable and because they know that the majority of today will become the minority to of tomorrow. As a result, we have the swing of the electoral pendulum, the political neutrality of the army and civil service, forget about the current mutiny, uh, the whole tradition of peaceful change which is England's greatest contribution to the science of government. But, and it's the but upon which I want to focus, but in Ireland, these conditions did not apply. Ireland was and is, written in 1955, a land of bitter, irreconcilable racial and religious conflicts. The Protestant minority could never hope by any swing of pendulum to become the majority. The two nations in Ireland were separated by the whole of their past history. They were divided by rivers of blood and bitterness. It was absurd to expect the conventions which prevailed in placid England, which would be accepted by the Ulster Protestants, would be accepted by the Ulster Protestants with all this fear, suspicion and hatred in their hearts. For of all political disputes, nationalist disputes are the most bitter and recalcitrant. They are very seldom settled by peaceful means within the framework of a liberal constitution. On the contrary, they are usually resolved, as Bismarck observed, not by parliamentary majorities, but by blood and iron. So much for British parliamentary democracy and its applicability to Ireland. I want to trouble you with one further quotation. Nobody understood this better than the British Prime Minister Henry Asquith. And he realized that British parliamentary democracy, he realized in 1913-14 that British parliamentary democracy was about to fail Ireland. He wrote a memorandum to the king who'd been deluging him with correspondence about how he had to compromise about the Home Rule Bill. And this is in September 1913. <coughs> he first acknowledged that the enactment of the Home Rule Bill in its original form, the form in which it went on the statute book, entailed, as he put it, the certainty of tumult and riot and more than the possibility of bloodshed. But he went on to predict a much bloodier future if the bill were abandoned. And he wrote the following. If the bill is rejected or indefinitely postponed, as it was, or some inadequate and disappointing substitute put forward in its place, the prospect is, in my opinion, much more grave. The attainment of home rule has for more than 30 years been the political ideal of the Irish people. 
Whatever happens in other parts of the United Kingdom, at successive general elections, the Irish representation in Parliament never varies. In other words, there's always a decisive majority for Unruh. It is the confident expectation of the vast bulk of the Irish people that it will become law next year. As Mr. Mimonides said, that was their confident, if deluded, expectation. If the ship, after so many stormy voyages, Asquith continued, were now to be wrecked in sight of port, it is difficult to overrate the shock or its consequences. They would extend to every department of political, social, agrarian, and domestic life. It is not too much to say that Ireland would become ungovernable unless by the application of forces and methods which would offend the conscience of Great Britain and arouse the deepest resentment in all the self-governing dominions of the Crown. Which, of course, is exactly what happened when the Black and Tans were given free reign in 1920-21. And Asquith saw that was going to happen. And it happened. I want to turn to something Mr. Malides said, because it obviously applies to me. I, I don't take this in any way personally, but it obviously does apply to Fatal Path. When he said the overly cynical interpretation of some historians that the British never intended that the bill would be enacted in the form in which it was introduced. Well, my position is, as I spell out, the Liberal government never intended that the Third Home Rule Bill should be enacted in the form it was introduced. And it was only enacted in the form it was introduced because it was suspended. And it was never implemented in the form in which it was enacted 100 years ago today. And Again, the proof of that is fairly obvious. It's in, uh, I think Mr. Mulhidi made some reference to the crucial cabinet meeting of the 6th of February 19, uh, 1912, most important discussion of Irish policy since Gladstone's conversion to Home Rule. And he reported next day to the King. He said the subject was debated at great length and from a number of diverse points of view. In the end, the cabinet acquiesced in the conclusion suggested by Lord Crewe, who was Asquith's great supporter, and strongly recommended by the Prime Minister, that is himself. Namely, A, that the bill as introduced should apply to the whole of Ireland. B, that the Irish leaders should from the first be given clearly to understand that the government held themselves free to make such changes in the bill as fresh evidence of facts or the pressure of British opinion may render expedient. C, that if in the light of such evidence or indication of public opinion, it becomes clear as the bill proceeds that some special treatment must be provided for the Ulster counties, the government will be ready to recognise the necessity either by amendment of the bill or by not pressing it on under the provisions of the Parliament Act. In the meantime, careful and confidential inquiry is to be made as to the real extent and character of Ulster resistance. That didn't happen. I won't go into the reasons why now. So yet again, in effect, what the Liberal government has decided is nothing. They'd merely acquiesced, very typically, as a Squithian word, in the institutionalization of the policy of wait and see. And what were they waiting for? Again, let's turn to Asquith's word. Fresh evidence or indication of public opinion that some special treatment must be provided for the Ulster counties. Now that's tantamount to a tacit invitation to revolution. The more seditious the Ulster Unionists became, the more persuasive, the fresh evidence, 
the more strident British public opinion urging that they receive special treatment. The primary responsibility rested with Asquith, who favoured exclusion, but he couldn't or wouldn't, for tactical reasons, decide upon the timing. And from a parliamentary point of view, and trying to hold together his parliamentary majority, that made sense. Asquith's tactics and policy, in other words, were designed to postpone rather than to resolve the Irish crisis. And what happened 100 years today, 100 years ago today, didn't solve the Irish question. It simply shelved it. But let me finish, as I began, with a reference to what's happening in Scotland today, and in particular, with a reference to what's going to happen tomorrow morning when the votes are counted, as a further illustration of the difference between the Irish and Scottish experience. Somebody's, I think it was the German, in introducing this symposium, said, reminded us, that when the bill was enacted, the Liberals, members of the Liberal Party, and the Irish Parliamentary Party in the House of Commons, sang, God save the King. Well, if the vote is yes tomorrow, by however narrow margin, there won't be any singing in the House of Commons. If there's singing in the Scottish National Assembly or anywhere else, I respectfully suggest it's much more likely to be Flower of Scotland than God Save the Queen. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much, Ronan. Our speakers have kept good time and we now have at least half an hour for questions.